Time now for the quote of the week. Although before I get to it, you know, I had to ask myself a question. Did I choose it because it kind of reinforces the longstanding primary trend outlined on Money Talks, and that is the declining confidence in government, or is an important measure that our thesis is actually getting wider acceptance? I think it's probably a little of both, but I welcome the verification or validation of well-respected voices in the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. But it's more important to note that until politicians, government officials, and in this particular case, Nobel Prize-winning economists who endorsed President Biden's massive spending agenda as being non-inflationary, but it could have been public health like Dr. Anthony Fauci who misled the public, until they all understand the profound consequences of their actions in terms of undermining confidence in government. It's not that the mainstream media doesn't see the deep divisions, I think they do now, social unrest and the distrust in the establishment institutions, but very few seem to understand, or maybe they just don't want to acknowledge the role that they play in fueling the distrust, which is why when mainstream media publications like the Wall Street Journal acknowledges the problem, that I think it's significant, which brings me to my quote of the week from their lead editorial on Thursday in quotes, one hallmark of our era is the collapse of public trust in government and experts of all kind. But it's hard to fault the public when so many experts and their policies have failed in such spectacular fashion. The inflation that progressives helped to cause, failed to anticipate, and then ignored is just one more example of earned public distrust. Time now for the shocking stat of the week, and it deals with one cost of the energy transition that's rarely mentioned, well, if ever, although... When I come to think of it, I can't think of any aspect of the transition to green energy that's fully costed. But specifically, I'm talking about the amount of money provincial and federal governments collect in fuel taxes. And this doesn't include the special levies, maybe, but put on by some municipalities. Well, the list of fuel taxes is a long one. I mean, we could talk carbon tax, federal excise tax, or a provincial excise tax, a federal sales tax. And as I say, the municipalities like Vancouver and Victoria, well, they add a transit tax. All in all, though, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation estimates that the tax take from, well, it's a low of 18% at the pump in Alberta to a high of something like 38% in Vancouver. And that brings me to the shocking stat. I mean, how much does government collect in fuel taxes? Well, the shocking number is $22 billion. That's it. Think about it. $22 billion, as they say, depending which city you're in, what province you're in, well, the percentage of what you're paying at the pump in taxes varies with the high, high in North America, in Vancouver at about 38, even up to 40%. But the question is, what if everyone switches to electric vehicles? Well, obviously, that fuel tax revenue dries up. Presto, $22 billion gone if everyone has switched. So how are governments going to replace that much revenue? I mean, that's the money that helps fund highways, bridges, local roads. So it's important. But is anyone even asking the question? Well, maybe the government's lucky because I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that government doesn't have an answer, hasn't thought it through. But that still doesn't change the reality that there's a heck of a lot of money collected in fuel taxes that will have to be replaced. Time now for the this week's Goofy Award. You know what? And it's a dangerous one. At least that was the adjective that immediately came to my mind when I read Terry Glavin's story in the National Post entitled The Year of the Graves, How the World's Media Got It Wrong on Residential School Graves. And it was published basically a year uh, to the day of the discovery of 215 unmarked graves on the ground of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. 
I say it was dangerous because of the emotions involved when it comes to the horrendous treatment of students at residential schools that was well-documented, by the way, several years earlier in the final volume of the Truth and Reconciliation Report, released December 2015, which contained a 138-page section, plus supporting notes, entitled Canada's Residential Schools, Missing Children and Unmarked Burials. Well, contrary to the media narrative, there were not mass graves, but unmarked burials. Tragically, though, nearly half of the documented deaths attributed were to a tuberculosis, which festered due to limited government funding, which is the report details in quotes, students in most schools were malnourished, quartered and crowded in unsanitary facilities, poorly clothed and overworked. I mean, that's a damning conclusion that doesn't require any embellishment. As Terry Glavin notes in the National Post story, the documentary record going back to the early years of the 20th century is rife with accounts of sexual predators and sadists employed by the schools. In more recent years, what something like 50 school officials have been convicted of sexually abusing and raping children in their care. Some of them were supervisors, administrators, priests, brothers from religious orders, and a Catholic bishop. Come on, this doesn't need any sensationalizing or embellishment. And please be clear, Terry's story is not about challenging the horrendous and tragic conditions endured by indigenous children taken from their families and the unfathomable hardship survivors continue to face, which, by the way, I don't make any pretense of being able to fully comprehend. No, Terry's story, though, is focused on the media coverage, which sensationalized and fueled the outrage. And by the way, think about this. The response didn't stop at just canceling Canada Day but resulted in the burning or vandalizing of, what, 68 Christian churches? Canadian flags flew at half-mast on government buildings for five months. Statues were torn down. All of it prompted, though, nine Victoria-area First Nations leaders to sign a document stating these actions, in quotes, fuel hate and inhibit the healing that is so deeply needed right now. The disrespectful and damaging acts we have seen are not helping. They are perpetuating hurt, hate, and divide, end of quote. That's why I think it's important to examine the media coverage. What was gained by sensationalizing and magnifying the tragedy? I mean, it's not difficult uh, to see that the coverage and subsequent outrage is part of a bigger agenda, though. I mean, it's the kind of thing we saw in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Certainly paid a part, by the way, this whole story. China was pushing the cultural genocide story about Canada. They did it on social media, it was in, and they did it publicly in order to mute criticism of their heinous crimes against the Uyghurs. But I think the bigger issue regards the media handling of the story surrounds Terry Glavin's statement that false reporting or purposely sensationalizing the stories doesn't promote reconciliation. Instead, it reduces the tragedy, especially when Canadians start doubting if what they're being told is true. The response in some quarters then is, hey, well, then don't expose the falsehoods or the hyperbole, which I'll bet Mr. Glavin heard some variation of in spades. It's part of that old debate, though. Do the ends justify the means? And increasingly, I think the answer is yes for a lot in the media. Now, it's certainly the case with COVID. You know, you weren't supposed to question the government uh, mantra or edicts. And if you did, that could result in things like job termination. You know, the end of getting everyone to comply with government edicts, including vaccination, justified what can fairly be called advocacy journalism. To some degree, though, that can also be said about the climate change debate. 
where scientists who dissented from the alarmist agenda were vilified. But again, the threat has always been overstated. As Terry Glavin concludes, and I think this is the important part, this is directly related to an increasing tendency across journalism, academia, and government policy to conflate knowledge with belief. It's a tendency that's fatal to the functioning of liberal democracy. And I'll add that it greatly contributes to declining confidence in government and the establishment institutions. And I think that's leading to social unrest. We saw it in the truckers' convoy, but the massive protests in Europe too. No, this is a serious issue. The ends do not justify the means. And especially in this case, with this story, where the facts are so overwhelming, where Canadians have responded to the real facts in a way that has created at least a higher level of sensitivity as the tragedy of the residential schools has been brought forward.